It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Fast Talk. Street Talk. Mike Graham. Fighting the good fight with all his might. Providing a welcome dose of common sense for the common people. Solid Talk. Hot Talk. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Online on DAB Plus, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Welcome to Monday, welcome to the first Monday of April and welcome to yet another week uh, of what can only be described as some very, very interesting stories all together. We're going to be speaking first of all to Rupert Lowe, uh, former Brexit Party MEP, now a member of Reform. He's going to be talking to us about a great many things, including of course the big row that's going on uh, over the French situation uh, down in Dover about whether Brexit is to blame or not. Uh, Obviously it depends on who you believe, doesn't it? It depends on whether you voted to remain. If you voted to remain, it's all the fault of Brexit. Uh, if you voted to leave, it's got nothing to do with Brexit. As ever in this country, the truth is probably somewhere in between. But what it isn't uh, is entirely the fault of Brexit. It's entirely the fault of the French national strike which is going on. It's entirely the fault of all these idiots who think it's a great idea to go on a skiing holiday with your school on a coach every single first Saturday of the Easter holidays where there's a 15% increase and they should have really checked that before they went. We're also going to talk about Keir Starmer. Uh, he apparently has now worked out what a woman is, but he still thinks some of them have got a penis. Well done, Sir Keir. Uh, he's come out of the closet, but not far enough. He's still left one foot inside. We'll also be talking about Rwanda. Uh, is it a safe place to go for migrants? Well, if they're willing to risk their lives by travelling across the channel on a small boat, presumably they won't mind being flown to a place which is perfectly safe for an awful lot of people, including the UNHCR. That's right, uh, the UN Refugee Agency, because they put people there all the time. We'll also be talking about the new migrant camp that I discovered down in Sussex at the weekend. Uh, we'll find out what that is all about. Plus, of course, uh, there will be a sentencing today for Thomas Cashman, that ghastly individual uh, who now apparently has a price on his own head. Uh, He was a big drug wheeler dealer. Uh, He was the one that shot, uh, unfortunately, dead that poor little nine-year-old girl in Liverpool, um, Olivia, and now he will be sentenced, hopefully, to a life term. Also, we'll be talking about grooming gang because apparently the Labour Party couldn't handle doing it, uh, so now the Tory party are going to have to deal with it instead. 0344 499 1000. Also, uh, we will be talking an awful lot about parking during the show today uh, because because apparently there's now going to be parking apps only. So if you don't know how to operate a parking app, or you haven't got a parking app, you just won't be able to park anywhere. It's as simple as that. 0344 499 Peter Hitchens here as well. Also, Great Expectations and Bare Bottoms. We'll be talking about that. Bit of a shocker. Uh, you may not have been expecting that when you put on your BBC show last night. Uh, some people are quite upset. This is Talk TV. I'm Mike Graham. It's the Independent Republic. Let's get it on. 
Welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. But where to begin, ladies and gentlemen? Let us begin where it all did begin uh, back in 2016, where, of course, uh, this country voted to leave the European Union. And now, basically, everything that goes wrong in this country is being blamed on the European Union and our no longer being a part of it, which, of course, is complete and utter errant nonsense. Every time there's a problem at Dover, we blame uh, Brexit. Every time there's a problem with uh, shortages of tomatoes, we blame Brexit. None of these things have got anything to do with Brexit. I flew to Italy last year uh, under these new so-called rules that people like Simon Calder keeps banging on about. Um, the fact that they now have to not only look at your passport, they have to stamp it. I got through uh, at uh, the airport con passport control just as quickly as I would have done before the new rules came into place because they still look at your passport, they just don't stamp it. It literally takes no time at all. So to blame Brexit seems to me uh, to be a bit of a nonsense. But let's talk to Rupert Lowe, uh, former Brexit Party MEP, uh, to get his view. Rupert, very good morning to you. Welcome. Morning, Mike. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. There's a lot to get on with, I suppose. But, but I mean, are they ever going to stop blaming Brexit for anything that goes wrong? Well, I, I think um, at the end of the day, as you quite rightly said, we voted, uh, the British people voted to leave the EU despite the, the government trying to persuade us that it was the wrong decision. Uh, the problem we've got is that none of the, uh, uh, what I call, apparatus of government uh, backing up the, the ministers, i.e. the civil service, mm. believe in Brexit. So, firstly, on our side of the equation, we haven't really had Brexit yet. Right. Uh, and you talk about, you, you know, France and the other EU countries, uh, they are piqued about the fact that the British people voted to leave, which is a perfectly fair decision to make. They want their own sovereignty back. But what they're trying to do is now punish us. Now, obviously, the French uh, border issue, uh, as we're seeing at Dover at the moment, partly is to do with strikes, but equally uh, it's to do with the fact that processing uh, British people going to Europe has been... Uh, made more difficult by, as I say, a peaked French establishment who want to try and blame Brexit. It's absolute nonsense. And in, a, in any sensible uh, free trade area, which is what we should be in if we want to benefit Europe, uh, we could solve all these problems, but we won't solve it if people don't have to will, the will to do that. No. And I mean, quite frankly, if the people that run the ferry port at Dover haven't worked out that it gets a bit busy around Easter holiday time, uh, particularly on the first day of the Easter holidays, I mean, really, they ought to have a quick look at their own, their own management systems and figure out uh, why they're so useless when there's a surge. A bit like the water companies who don't seem to know how to handle it when there's too much water or not enough water. I mean, I saw you put out a tweet earlier on about the public sector in this country being completely useless. And it does seem to be, doesn't it? I can't think of anything that's being run by the public sector that actually works. Well, this, this is what, this is what uh, amuses me, uh, Mike. I mean, at the end of the day, I've been on the board of many companies where if the board sits around the table and it opines about something and it then instructs the people who are actually executing the plan to do it, and they, uh, through dumb insolence or incompetence or lack of commitment, they don't uh, carry out and execute what the board uh, dictates, uh, then nothing happens. And this is what we're seeing. We're seeing Rishi and the sort of uh, the clowns uh, who are now ministers yeah. uh, pontificating on absolutely everything. And they're getting more and more desperate as we get closer to the election to talk about uh, all these various issues that they think the public want to hear. But the problem is that's just what it is. It's, it's all idle, uh, irrelevant talk because... Mm. None of them uh, are able to actually deliver what they're talking about. And we, 
you know, as I always say, I like to watch what the hands are doing, not what the mouth is saying. Yes. Uh, and, and unfortunately, we're forced to listen to what the mouth is saying because all the media outlets spew it out. Uh, we now have a state that accounts for over 50% of our GDP. Most of them are bone idle and, and, and not very competent. Uh, most of them are woke. Uh, and a lot of them, basically, as far as I can see, and I, I, I run a lot of businesses, are doing their damnedest to strangle the British economy. Yeah. Well, half uh, but of them. Until, until, until we get some sensible leadership, uh, we are just going to get into a downward spiral and ultimately everybody will pay. So mm. as you quite rightly say, Mike, we need the home of common sense more than ever. Well, we do. And this is the problem because, you know, I'm calling it shop window politics. So there's a guy somewhere in number 10 uh, who just keeps passing little notes under the door saying, right, talk about, uh, let's see, immigration. Talk about stopping the boats. Talk about antisocial behaviour. Talk about fixing the water companies. Talk about all of it. But don't actually do anything because, you it's know. It's garbage. It's garbage, Mike. And, I, you know, that's why I'm, I'm 66 years old uh, in six months' time. I get my pension. I don't really need to stand up and stand for reform again. I stood for the referendum party in 97 to save the pound because all the idiots wanted to sign up for the euro. Yep. Uh, that was all three parties then, Paddy Ashdown, Tony Blair, uh, and obviously John Major, yes. one of the least sound uh, uh, Conservative Party prime ministers we've ever had. Right. Uh, we, I then did a lot for Vote Leave. I did a lot, obviously, for Brexit, uh, the Brexit campaign. And now I feel I've got to make one last stand to try and uh, stand for the British people, because until we get people elected from outside Parliament and outside the Westminster cesspit, as I call it, which is now a farce, uh, we are going to go on as a country disappearing down the plug hole. So if the British people choose not to vote for reform, then they've only got themselves to blame this time because I will not be standing again after this election. I, I'm too old. Uh, there are many brighter, more able young men than me. And really, the disappointment is that we aren't seeing those young people stand up no. for what they believe in and they're not taking the responsibility they should be taking. No, they're too busy um, hiding in the corner because they're frightened to go out. Uh, because exactly. it might get COVID. I mean, you know, mind you, would, would you should, exactly. I'm, going to, I'm going to record that particular speech that you just made and send it to Joe Biden, by the way, so that he can shuffle off as well, because he's definitely too old to stand again. Well, but that's don't, talk to, don't talk to me about <laughs> Joe Biden. I mean, how the free world can be led by a man with dementia, I really don't know. I know, absolutely staggering. Um, just as we speak, I'm seeing the passport office workers have begun a five-week walkout today. I mean, they just keep going on strike. We've got the, the, the junior doctors are going on strike after Easter Monday next week for five days. So they're basically having a week off. Um, I read a piece at the weekend from the Sunday Times um, talking about the numbers, the hundreds of thousands of people who are missing out on, on getting their operations, who are, who are missing out on getting treatments from the NHS. I mean, it's just unbelievable how shambolic the public sector is, isn't it? Honestly, if you are involved in business like I am, every single uh, government activity so they've inserted themselves into our lives by regulating and making registration necessary so you can't do anything without actually either registering mm. or, or effectively being regulated and the problem then is if your regulator is deficient which is which is what's happening and that doesn't matter whether it's central government or whether it's local government you're seeing you know total failure in planning yeah and, and, and if the economy is going to grow, we need a, an efficient planning uh, service which delivers planning permissions. But they, they are puerile and they are pathetic. 
They use no common sense. And at the end of the day, I, I think most of them are very keen to stop any form of even sensible development, which is necessary if we're going to progress as a, as a country. So it's not just that, as you say, the passport office. It doesn't matter whether you're renewing a shotgun certificate. It doesn't matter whether you're trying to get your you know, license renewed. Every single aspect of the state is failing. Mm. And it's this is where I say, you know, it's all very well for little Rishi to be, uh, you know, talking about this and talking about that and talk, telling us that he's going to secure our borders. But they haven't done so. Cameron told us he was going to reduce uh, illegal immigration. Uh, failed. You know, Theresa May failed. Uh, Rishi, he will fail because they don't have the will or the commitment to actually do what they say they, yeah. they want to do. They're just giving people, they're feeding people, chucking bread on the water and then hoping everybody will get on with their lives, yeah. which so far has happened. But sooner or later, people will have to stand up because their businesses won't work, their lives won't work. You know, and at the end of the day, we're now seeing all this ridiculous L LTN nonsense, yeah. and loads of undemocratic behavior by petty minded little bureaucrats, you know, who are using the green agenda as an excuse to basically impose very restrictive measures on free people. Absolutely. Uh, and I know. So I, I watch it, Mike, and I, you know, great to see your show talking common sense, because the one thing we lack in government is any degree of common sense. Yeah. Well, this is the thing, and I'm going to ask you in a minute, I'm going to take a little short break. I'm going to ask you about Grant Shapps, because I see that you've got an offer to him that you could give him a, a, a nice heat pump to sort himself out with because he doesn't actually have one yet. This is a guy who, when he was uh, uh, in, in, in government in his last job, said to me on the radio, don't you want to be the world leader in onshore wind? And I went, no, not really. Um, and he was absolutely staggered. He couldn't believe, never heard anything like it. Anyway, stay where you are. Rupert Lowe's with us. We'll be back with more from Rupert and more uh, from the shambles that is this country. This is Talk TV. On DAB+, on the app, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We're talking to Rupert Lowe, former Brexit Party MEP, now member of Reform. Just before we go any further, let's have a look at Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary. She was on uh, Laura Kunzberg's show uh, on BBC One yesterday morning and she was asked about Rwanda and whether it is a good and safe destination for migrants. I am convinced that it is safe to send refugees to Rwanda. Now, yes. the reason I ask that is that in 2018, a group of refugees in Rwanda did stage a protest because their food rations were reduced. Do you know what happened to them? I'm not familiar with that particular case. Okay. According to the United Nations refugee body, a group of refugees staged a protest. The Rwandan police then fired live rounds at them and 12 people were killed. We're looking at 2023 and beyond. The High Court, senior expert judges have looked into the detail of our arrangement with Rwanda and found it to be a safe country and found our arrangements to be lawful. Yeah, absolutely convinced as they are at the BBC that they should try and stymie any attempt to stop illegal migrants coming here because they all think it's a great idea. Um, Rupert, it does beg a belief, doesn't it? I went down because I found out that uh, there was to be a new migrant camp set up in Bexhill, uh, not far from uh, where my family lives, and I thought I'd go and see where it is. And it's an old prison, apparently, an unused, disused prison that hasn't been around really for a while. And it's and it's literally a kind of um, um, a, a ramshackle-looking um, sort of set of structures but it's at the end of a very small and private sort of residential road. And you just think, so you're going to put a thousand migrants in there who will not have the ability to be locked up. Uh, young men who have come here from supposedly war-torn France. Doesn't seem like a great idea. And putting them somewhere other than a hotel is not the answer, is it? 
No, it used to happen in my old constituency in the West Midlands. Suddenly, a hotel would be filled up with illegal immigrants. Uh, none of the none of the locals were consulted, and the first thing they knew is the hotel had closed down. It was full of of people who the, the government had sent there. Right. I mean, look again. This is soluble if if we believe in our borders and. Australia has shown us the way to do it. Uh, she's done it very successfully. She's got a much bigger uh, sea, sea boundary than we have. Uh, she has a zero tolerance policy. So those people who come to the country illegally will never, ever be allowed to come back to the UK. Never, they're never allowed to go back to Australia. Mm. We're far too generous with people when they come here. I, I, I saw a clip last night on Twitter of some of the so-called uh, illegal immigrants uh, coming out of a betting shop, yes. no doubt, with money that had been provided by by, by the British taxpayer. Yeah. Oh, so, no. I mean, I, I joke about this because, you know, it's called the Border Patrol, but the way the way I watch it, it looks like the Border Taxi Service. Well, exactly. Well, this is I the mean, thing. The only, the, only way, the only way to stop people continuing to arrive on our shores is to make it a much less palatable place when you get here. You know, of course, why, of course they're going to keep coming if they know that as soon as they set foot on the beach uh, down at Dungeness or wherever they come in, uh, that they will be given a hotel room, they'll be given money, uh, they'll be looked after, they'll be fed, uh, they'll be watered, they'll be able to wander about, they'll be able to take part in the black economy if they want to. You know, it's a nonsense, the whole thing. Well, they, they, they do, Mike, and a lot of them are from Albania. Uh, most of them, as we know, are young men. Uh, none of them look particularly badly dressed to me. They don't look like the classic refugee. No. So, uh, I mean, they're clearly uh, economic migrants who shouldn't be coming to the UK without uh, basically applying legally to come here and being given permission to mm. come here. And we should have a zero tolerance policy. Like the Australians, you know, we should have the border, border patrol should have, or border taxi service, whatever you want to call it, should have basically spare boats and if people are trying to come here they should basically replace those boats if they're not safe and then tow them back to france yeah. I, I mean we we should have a zero tolerance policy as you quite rightly say when they get here if they do get here they should not be made very comfortable and become a huge burden on the honest tax-paying british citizens who basically work extremely hard and are now paying a record amount mm. of tax and they're not just overt taxes. These are covert taxes. Yeah. They're taxes by stealth. And, you know, only this morning I found out from my accountants, I, I, I've built a huge uh, racing stable here for Fergal O'Brien, who's doing extremely well. And I've now discovered that the uphill gallop, the round gallop and the flat gallop that I have built, you'd think you'd be able to offset, offset that in terms of your capital taxes yeah no it's considered to be part of the land even though it's a central part of the racing stables and you're allowed to depreciate it at three percent a year now you tell me if that is a good way of encouraging people it's to spend really lots of money investing in good facilities it isn't no. none of the government's policies are designed to generate a vibrant economy basically run by what i call highly principled motivated individuals mm. making decisions that are in the interests of both themselves and therefore the country as well. Well, this is the thing. So I mean, it's, and it it's goes, a joke. for me, it goes all the way back to George Osborne, who, who I thought was the worst chancellor we'd ever seen. But I'm not quite sure whether we're going to end up counting some of his um, successes as well. But, you know, he was, the, a, the he was of, a snake. The he war, was a snake. Yeah, the war on a lot of these stealth business. taxes come from George. Yeah, That's they do. exactly where they come from. Exactly right. And a lot of them were sort of load, loaded into the future, weren't they? But the point is, is that it's a war on the small business in this country, which is the proper way uh, to, to close down in any economy. You know, I run a little business myself and, and the tax regime and the red tape has become in, 
intolerable. And I mean, if you had the choice, you'd go just pick up and go and set up somewhere in some other part of the world, wouldn't you? Well, I'm amazed that more little small business owners who are the backbone of the British economy. And, and you know, if you remember, Napoleon used to regale against the uh, British shopkeeper, yes, who, was, right. who was effectively not like the grand plans of the continental mm. French. These were proper people with proper businesses, basically living an honest, good life, earning a crust. And in those days, Mike, not paying very much tax. Mm. Because I think in by up to 1910, I'm right in saying that the tax take was only about 10% of national income. Right. Uh, it's a damn sight higher than that now, both in, in real and nominal terms. Right. So, look, I, I we need small businesses to be thriving. But what they do is they, they collect NI, they collect pensions, they collect income tax, they gift wrap it and they give it to the, the, the fat state that mm. does absolutely nothing with it other than piss it up against the wall. Yeah, exactly right. Let's finish up with uh, this offer to Grant Shapps that you've made, uh, your company has made. Um, he apparently doesn't have a heat pump. I didn't know you were in the heat pump business. Is that one of your businesses as well? That That is a business I'm involved in, which is uh, growing very fast. And, and, you know, contrary to the media, you get a lot of heat pumps do work extremely well. So I've got a company called Alto Energy, which is based in Brides-Norton, run mm. by some very bright people, both in terms of you know design and, and, and everything to do with ground source and air source heat pumps. So, And we have another business, which is 100 years old, or was 100 years old last month, called Lowe & Oliver, which which, my, which is our family business in right. Oxford. Uh, so basically, Alto do all the design and the procurement, and Lowe & Oliver do a lot of the installation. So when we, and I've got them, they're in our stables up the top, they're in my farm office, they're, 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 we use them everywhere, because obviously I think the, 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 the greener we can be without killing our economy, the better. Yeah. Uh, and so when we read that Mr. Shapps, who's uh, you know leading the charge on these things, didn't have one, we thought, well, we'll make him the offer of one. Yeah. Uh, so far, he hasn't taken it up, right? but um, maybe maybe he isn't able to take it up because he will be criticised for taking a freebie. Maybe so. Uh, but this is the point, though. I've always said, look, nobody's got anything against the, the green agenda as long as it makes it cheaper. But why the hell should we get, we get another system to heat our homes or to drive a car if it's more expensive? You know, they don't seem to get that part. They're sort of forcing everybody to pay more money uh, for essentially something they don't want. Well, we should we should first of all, before we, you know, I think Britain accounts for one percent of global global mm. GDP. So to beggar our economy, when China, Indonesia, uh, India, and all these other huge populous economies, they don't give a tinker's about the of course green they agenda. Don't. So until until we've actually got some global commitment to it, which we actually tangibly see happening. Uh, for, you know, all the do-gooders in this country who stand up and talk about, you know, climate change and the end of the world. They're only able to indulge all this because of QE uh, and bank bailouts. Mm. I mean, if we actually genuinely had a capitalist economy, which is what I'd like to see, uh, then people would actually have to undergo some form of hardship. And that would actually, as you say, bring some reality check uh, to common sense. Mm. Um, so QE, uh, you know, all this sort of central planning which we've got now, it's going to end in tears unless unless there's a real revolt against it. And Middle England stands up for itself because it's Middle England that is now being hollowed out by all the tax changes yeah. that have been happening. Uh, yeah. And the inflation that, that 
basically Andrew Bailey and the Bank of England has forced on us through yeah. printing too much money. Another, use, another useless organisation, but we better not get started on that because we're out of time. We could do this all day. Listen, uh, Rupert, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Rupert Lowe, uh, former Brexit Party MEP. A man after my own heart, a man who talks an awful lot of sense. Let us talk some more sense. Coming up, uh, we're going to be joined uh, by Lisa Minow from The Sun. She's going to tell us what the latest is down at the port of Dover, uh, how your getaway is going. It's going a bit better, I think, than it was yesterday. Uh, this is Talk TV. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Did you not know it was going to be the first Saturday of the Easter holidays? Did you not know that there would be a lot of people travelling? Did you not expect maybe to put a few more people on to make sure that people could actually get onto a ferry without having to wait 15 bleeding hours? Lisa Minow's here from The Sun. Very good morning to you, Lisa. Morning. Um, not a great weekend to be trying to get across the channel, but of course, you could come the other way, no problem at all, just get on a little boat, and nobody will even ask, you won't even be asked for your identification at the other side, so that's kind of ironic, but, but we'll leave that to one side. Um, <laughs> What's it all about? What's going wrong? Well, I mean, I think, again, it's another one of these perfect storms. But how many more of these storms do we have to endure? Yes, there was some issues with um, bad weather on Friday. But why that would mean that it's taken until Monday morning mm. before they've managed to process all of these coaches, yeah. that doesn't m- make sense. They said they started their planning four months ago mm. to make sure that this big getaway... And this is the Port of Dover we're talking about. Yes. Right. Um, they always said that, you know, they've four months planning to make sure that this big getaway was going to be smooth and, and not problem free. Mm. That's not what happened. They then blame the fact that 15 percent more coaches were booked onto ferries than they thought. Well, again, I mean, you don't just randomly decide no. to take a coach to Dover. Um, these are trips, as we've seen, a lot of them were school trips with right. families um, sending away their kids on um, ski breaks or mm. sports breaks. Um, and these people, you know, they've obviously had at least a year's notice. I'm, you know, I'm a mum myself. Yeah. I know, you know, these these trips cost a fortune. They do. And, and, if you, and if you're booking a coach onto a ferry, yes. I presume that you can only book it onto the ferry if there's room on the ferry. And when of that course. ferry's full, you have to book it on a different ferry. So yes. it's not as if they didn't know they were coming because you don't just turn up at Dover yeah. without a reservation, do you? So, I mean, that is where I think the, the main problem has been. And then we do have to admit the fact that, the, the, you know, it is taking longer to get people through. Mm. Um, since we decided to vote to leave the European Union, um, we are now regarded as a third country, yeah. a third party country. So that does mean that we have to have these enhanced checks now now every time you used to pre you know pre-brexit you know you would just wave your passport yeah. as you drove past and there would be a very cursory look at it mm. it's now taking about a minute per car that's yeah. if you've got four people in it a, a coach can take anything to 20 to 30 minutes now if you've got lots of coaches there were 300 yeah. on saturday alone right. all turning up if you haven't staffed up properly for that or actually have the right space for those coaches yes. and i think that was half the problem as well they just didn't know where to put the coaches. Once there was a bit of a delay, they had nowhere to put them. Yeah. Hence, why they were all sent off. But to this is why, when we talk stations. about you know these, these lorries backing up on the yeah. M20, which happens on a regular basis, mm. they just don't have enough space down there. No. You know, so why don't they do something about that? It's a bit like the NHS. You know, why don't you fix it rather than just complaining yeah. about it every time it happens? Well, I mean, that's it, and it is a constrained space. There isn't anywhere else to go with Doverport. They've gone as far as they can. Last year they, they introduced knock most of Dover down, and nobody would care because <laughs> it's one of the most ugly towns I've ever seen and then just make it a massive coach just park. Just tunnel into the yeah, cliffs just make, basically. Yeah, just make it a, a, a massive coach park. But but again, it's it's, it's this lack of planning and yeah, I yeah. accept that, that the French have decided they want to now look at everybody's passport. I flew to Italy, as I'm sure you mm. fly to Spain and all sorts of other places um, last summer and they were checking everybody's passport. It didn't take any longer than it did 
the last time I went there when they didn't have mm. those rules in place. So, you know, if they're looking at your passport and now they're stamping it, it might be taking a little bit of time. But it's more the volume of, of numbers, isn't it, that's the problem? That's right. And and again, we can't have the Port of Dover and other places saying, oh, but it's, you know, a really big holiday. There's lots of people travelling. Well, well, they're all blaming Brexit, aren't they, down there as well? <sighs> Which is a bit, I would say, disingenuous. As you say, it's part of the problem. That, it's part that, of the problem. But it's taking slightly yeah. longer. But if you know that, it's not like yeah. a surprise, is it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, and there has been other proposals put forward in terms of maybe expanding the port facilities at somewhere like Ramsgate, um, so that we're not having everybody all trying to go through this one particular part. I mean, obviously, it's the quickest way to get across the channel. That's yeah. why people use it. Mm. Um, but I think what might happen is that, as we heard over the weekend, people saying, that's it, I'm not doing Dover again, I'm going to fly or I'm going to go from somewhere else. Mm. Well, that then just moves the problem. If they start going to different ports that right. also maybe aren't set up for it, um, we need to look at it and see exactly what we do. And actually, what worries me more is the fact that once we have the entry-exit system, the EU's entry-exit system, which is coming in and apparently in November, exactly. well, this is going to be a new series of biometric checks. So right. you will have to have, every single person will have to have once every two years or three years, I haven't quite said what yet, they'll have to have their fingerprints taken and they'll have to have facial recognition. Now, if you've got a car at the moment where it's taking a minute for four people to have their passports checked, they're staying in their car while that's happening. Yeah. Imagine what's going to happen when everybody has to get out of that car yeah. and go and have their fingerprints taken yeah. and the biometric checks. So like checks. what you do when you go into America, Exactly, yeah. But that's set up. An airport is set up for that kind of sort of, you know, process. Right. Um, a port isn't. You can't have people wandering around car lanes mm. as cars are going back and forth. And, you know, the Port of Dover has been quite rightly saying for, you know, quite a while now, look, what is going to happen? happen. Mm. Now, there's obviously issues with this system. It was meant to be introduced last November. The EU have delayed it um, till May this year and then again to November this year. Right. And it's going to be linked with the new visa, the the sort of Esther for Europe, which is going to cost around seven euros, right. again, will last for two years. And at the moment, I don't think those two systems can even talk to each other. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's something that we've got to come up with in terms of somewhere like Dover, there just physically isn't the space mm. to actually try to get all of these people out of cars and coaches and get them all through this new system. Maybe they should invent the hovercraft. Oh, no, they already <laughs> did, and then they stopped using it. I know. That was fabulous. one of the greatest ways to get across the channel yep. of all time. Why did they stop it? Um, I think it just wasn't... It wasn't wasn't financially viable anymore. Because um, you could, could put cars on it as well. It was a big yep. thing, wasn't it? Yeah, but you could get more people on a ferry. That's the problem. Yeah, you can. But I mean, it's just absolutely. It must have been awful to be sitting on a coach with a lot of you know school children. Can you imagine? Yes, I wouldn't have wanted to have been a teacher this weekend on a coach for eighteen hours. Up to eighteen yeah, hours, some right. of those kids were on. Coaches what are the other for? problems we've got to look forward to over Easter? Because um, people will be flying. I mean, I think there is an airstrike, uh, an air traffic controller strike in France at various points, yep. isn't there? So we've got air traffic control. It's great Europe, isn't it? I mean, they're so <laughs> helpful. You know, yeah, let's just go on strike. Let's just make them do all this. I mean, really ridiculous. I mean, the air traffic control in France is a big issue because this doesn't just impact people who are flying into France. This right. applies to any airline that flies over French airspace. So if you're taking a flight to the likes of Spain mm. or Italy or somewhere like that, you're still going to be impacted by this. Now, they've got rules in France that say that they have to have a minimum level of national um, flights within their own borders. Right. So those are prioritised. And then other flights are just told, well, you cannot go over our airspace. Um, last week, I think it was before last, Ryanair had to cancel 200 flights in a day because mm. of the air traffic control strikes in France. So that is one issue that's going to be coming up. We've also got strikes at Heathrow at Terminal 5 that's Excellent. impacting 
um, the British Airways flights, yeah. they've been told by Heathrow to cancel 5% of their flights to try to make sure that things continue to run smoothly. Yeah. Now, hopefully that will just remain as that. But what we saw on Friday was actually 72 flights were cancelled. Um, so there is still you know, a significant and risk if one, of impact. If, if you're on one of those flights and they cancel it, there's, there's a time factor, isn't it? They have to cancel it within a certain period in order for you to be able to get a refund or get on another flight or something like that? They can cancel it at any time, but what you do have to do is, uh, or the airline has to do, is make sure that they get you to your destination um, as quickly as possible. As close to the actual flight. As close to that flight Mm. as possible, either with one of their flights or with the rival airline. Mm. Or you can have, as you say, a refund, and that would come through. Unfortunately, sometimes it takes a while to come through. Because we had a lot of this, didn't we, last year, when the travel business got got back up and running again, and it was a bit behind the, the, the sort of... Yeah. curve but you'd think this year they'd have got their act together wouldn't you? well i mean i think we are much better staffed up this year we mm. haven't seen the kind of scenes that we saw um last year and um, there's just been just as much of a big getaway not just at dover but mm. at airports and we have seen it going pretty smoothly mm. um that's if you can actually get away because of course today we see the first of five weeks of strikes by the passport, by the passport office, office yeah um who again unbelievable are... <laughs> what's going on they're just conspiring against us we're <laughs> well, never going to be able seem to like that I mean, it is incredible, isn't it, that nothing seems to work properly in the way that it used to. Whereas now, I mean, I kind of dread going anywhere now because you just think, well, what could go wrong? Well, pretty much everything. Yep, exactly. And you never used to have to think like that. You know, I'm going to go and visit my mother again in the States, going away next weekend uh, to France, funnily enough, so hopefully Mm. that'll be all right. But, you know, you just don't, you can't take anything for granted anymore. No, and it is a lot about basically making sure you, you know, you tick as many boxes as you can to try to, you know, sort of avoid these Mm. sort of issues. Um, One thing with the passport office strikes, I'm not sure how much impact that's going to have. It's about a million passports that normally would have been issued in that sort of five-week period. Um, But it's only about a quarter of the staff that have gone on strike. Um, And I think what's probably going to be impacted more than anything else is that it will be those people needing passports at the very last minute. Yes. Because those are the ones that So if you're waiting for one, like, because you want to travel of next month or next week yeah. or something then you're probably yeah 10 weeks at the moment you've got to leave yourself 10 mm. weeks it's they were before the strike they were being processed in about two and a half weeks yeah. but you now have to leave i would say those 10 weeks i just i just got on you a little while ago so i'm going to see her and look a bit smug that's <laughs> uh, bad luck if you're not in that situation great to talk to you thanks very Thank much you. indeed lisa minnow there from the sun uh, on the dreadful weekend that people had down in dover and it ain't going to get any better unless they improve the facilities quite frankly uh, this is talk tv Edgy talk, plain talk, unrivaled talk, Mike Graham. The only radio show you can count on for a proper serving of good old-fashioned common sense. In search of the perfect debate. The independent republic of Mike Graham. Online on DAB+, talk radio and talk TV. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. It is the first Monday in April. We did have April Fools, but as somebody pointed out, particularly with regard to Scotland, the stories that have been coming out lately are so mad and ridiculous that it's impossible to write what used to be a great thing to do in a newspaper on April Fool's Day, uh, some kind of silly story. There were quite a few things on Twitter I did notice, uh, and I got my family with quite a good one. But other than that, I think the art of doing it in newspapers has kind of died out. Uh, but speaking of art of newspapers, we've got Peter Hitchens here this morning. Uh, welcome, Peter. Nice to see you again. Uh, we're going to be talking about a great many things. Ukraine, uh, has got, he's got something to say about that. We're going to talk as well about crime and punishment and why the police are. Uh, also complicit in the death of little Olivia, uh, whose uh, killer, uh, Mr Cashman, is sentenced a bit later on today. We might also talk about great expectations of the new BBC adaptation, which has roundly uh, been 
criticised, uh, great exasperations in the Daily Mail, and we'll talk some more about that um, as well. But Peter, we should kick off, should we not, with, with the drugs conversation, the uh, the police statement from Merseyside well, yes. about uh, the whole horror of what happened in Liverpool that day. I've said for years that people spent ages and ages, ages looking for Mr Big in the drug trade, and in most cases they should look in the mirror because the, the Mr Big is actually mm. the millions and millions of Mr. and Ms. Smalls who take drugs in Western countries yeah. and with their dollars and pounds and euros finance the whole the whole business of the cartels mm. and the Escobars and all the rest of it. That's where it all starts yes. because people pay for it. The people who pay for it are committing crimes, the crime of possession of the drug, right. and nothing is done so. Now, the, the Assistant Chief Counsel of the Merseyside said after the the, the the conviction of the of the killer of, yeah. of Olivia, that he that everybody who takes drugs was complicit in this crime, and I agree with him yeah. completely. Absolutely. But what I thought that he should have added is that the police force, who have for years and years and years barely been bothering to enforce the law against possession, are therefore complicit as well. They have to actually change their attitude towards this if mm. they're going to do any good. It's no good trying to stop drugs being taken by getting in the way of supply, by going after the, the, the people who bring the drugs mm. in, by sending the Navy and the SAS after them in the Mediterranean or in the, or, or in the Caribbean. It won't work. You have to stop the demand. And people say, oh, well, that's not possible. And I would say it is proven to be possible because in both Japan and South Korea, mm. advanced democratic law-governed countries, the police still prosecute and the courts still punish for the crime of drug possession. And neither of those countries has a drug problem anything like as big well, many of the Well, many of those Southeast Asian countries have far bigger penalties as well. Well, they do, but I don't talk about them because these are not, in my view, democratic countries mm. or particularly law-governed, and I think the penalties that they, that they often impose are ridiculous. What, what Japan and South Korea do is they use penalties quite comparable with the ones in our, in our laws, mm. and they... They police the, the the actual possession of drugs in a way which we could do in countries which are quite comparable to us. People say, oh, well, there are cultural differences. And I say, well, that's just racist. Mm. You're just saying they're Asian countries, so yeah. they don't count. They, they are, the, the cultural differences arise from the legal differences. When this country seriously prosecuted uh, drug possession back in the 1960s, it was culturally different too. Mm. When it stopped doing so, the culture changed and you could change it back. But, but, but fundamentally, if, if the police would actually forced to law on possession, we would have much less of a drug problem, and these horrible things would be much less likely to happen. Yes, but I think it's almost as though the envelope has now been pushed so far open because drugs are so free freely available here. I think there was a time, perhaps when you and I were younger, where if you were looking for drugs, it was quite hard to find them, whereas now the places are washed with them. I mean, basically, London is the cocaine capital, I'm told, of Europe. Um, you can buy... You, I mean, you've said it before, and I, I notice it. Everywhere you go, you can smell marijuana. Yes, you can, but you you know, remember, there's an awful lot of it out there. Remember how common drunk driving was back in... Well, perhaps you don't. I do. Uh, the, uh, no, I remember it very well. In, back in the late 60s. And well, it took, in the 80s, it, it was took, still well, quite it got, it This is because the police got lax again. Mm. But what happened in the 60s was the breathalyzer was invented. And the police actually went out and enforced the law in a way they'd not previously been able to do mm. because there was no there was no technical way of showing that someone was too drunk to drive. And I remember in the months before the law came to effect, hearing uncles and so forth, ah, it's perfect, I'm perfectly safe after yeah. five pints, and I'm going to carry on. Well, within about six weeks mm. of the law coming in, the behaviour of, I would reckon, millions of men changed. Mm. They stopped drinking and driving yeah. because the law was enforced. No, I remember... It, any, any law, if it's enforced, will be obeyed. Yeah. But, and, and there are 
huge numbers of police officers, far more, I have yeah. to say, there were in the 1960s in this country who could enforce that law if they wanted to. Mm. But they have to want to. And the courts have to then have to then impose penalties. My own view is quite simple with all crimes, if, unless it's something like homicide. With the first offence, you, you, you say, all right, we've caught you. I, I would, in, in the case of marijuana, I would say in the case of the first offence, you'd get a genuine caution. Mm. That is to say, you wouldn't get a criminal record, but the offence would be recorded. And the police would say, all right. This time we're letting you off, but and this, this is, your employers you won't hear you. Won't the American mm. visa authorities don't have to be told you can still travel, but do it again and you go to jail. Yes, and if, if, if a few hundred thousand cautions of that kind, yeah. I promise you, well, totally change what you say about the drunk driving thing because I well remember when I was about ten or eleven, it was sort of early seventies, late sixties, early seventies, and I used to go to a golf club in Richmond with my father. And every day after we finished playing, if we, we did it once or twice a week, we would sit in the bar. We were on the train, so we didn't have to worry. And I yeah. wasn't drinking anyway. But but he, there was about five or six guys that were there every day, and they would have about five or six whiskeys. And then they'd get in the car and drive home. And then suddenly the police started putting somebody at the top of the road yeah. of the golf club, and they started pulling them all in. And so after a so while, sales of all, ginger ale went up. Yeah, they were all banned from driving. Yeah. It's like one after the other. And so you're right. I mean, if you do it, if you enforce a law. It will be obeyed. If you don't enforce it, then people will get the message very quickly that they don't have to obey it. And that's what's been happening in this country now for 30 years yeah. with police complicity. But I guess we'd uh, have the, the other Parliament's problem. never changed the law. It's still technically the case. If mm. you're caught in possession with, with cannabis, you, of cannabis, you can face five years in prison and an unlimited fine. There's very heavy penalties in, yeah. in the, in the in But of course, you'll get case. the do-gooders as happen. well saying, one, we haven't got room in prison for all these people. Well, you wouldn't, they wouldn't go to prison. This is the whole point. If you, if you, if you did a sensible thing with first offenders, who's going to risk uh, their entire employment future, their personal liberty, mm. their ability to travel to the United States for the rest of their life for a spliff? Yeah. Just, it's just disproportionate. It is. You're not going to do it. No, they're absolutely not. But also, to, to talk about the supply chain... In America, by legalizing marijuana, they thought that they would stop the supply of, of illegal drugs coming from Mexico. But in fact, all that's happened is the Mexican drug cartels are just selling different drugs. Well, yes, but also which are actually more dangerous. Legal legal drugs are always uh, are immediately attacked. One of the reasons for the legalization of drugs in in many countries is because the authorities are trying to find something new to tax. Mm because revenues from cigarette taxes are falling. Mm. So they see marijuana as a possibility. But as soon as you tax something, then in this country too, what, what HM Revenue Customs are mainly dealing with is smuggled cigarettes and illicitly distilled alcohol. They're legal. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that there isn't, that there isn't a black market right. in them. And if you legalize cannabis, immediately it's taxed. And if you put regulations on strengths and so forth, immediately it's regulated. Yeah. The black market dealers and the gangs will simply move in to sell it at far lower prices yeah. and without those restrictions. So that doesn't work. Right. The, the, and it was predictable it wouldn't work. And I said for many years it wouldn't work. And then in Canada and Colorado and California, it didn't work. And the, 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 the illegal market flourishes as it, as it did before. That doesn't solve anything. Yeah. And I just wonder, though, if, if there's any way of, of going from where we are now to a place where... Uh, the drug culture changes, the, the criminality changes. The drug—I mean, most of the most of the sort of criminality that now goes on in this country is drug-related. Well, yes, I, I think I think the the example of Japan and South Korea is important in that. The reason why Japan 
has such strict drug laws is because they had a very serious amphetamine problem mm. in Japan after the war. And people say the Japanese are so law-abiding, but in fact, on that matter, they were not. And the law against against uh, drug possession was enforced, and the amphetamine problem, although it still exists, yeah. was much reduced. You can change behavior, and f for the better. And now that we know, which nobody knew in the 60s, that there is a strong correlation between marijuana use and, and incurable mental illness. And now that it seems to me to be increasingly evident there's a strong uh, correlation between marijuana use and, and violent crime, uh, we need to be much more careful mm. than we thought we needed to be back yes. in the 60s. Well, without wishing to go back into the lockdown conversation, look how easy it was to change people's behaviour well, about going to work every day. I know, and for you a, know, they still and have, for they're a still bad not reason too. We've got, here we have a good reason to change people's right. behaviour and we, we don't do it. I, the, the moment all the, the, the opinion polls, the attitudes of members of parliament and ministers, including in the Conservative Party, are all tending towards legalisation uh, because that's the way it goes. I, I, there's, there's a report coming out from the House of Commons Home Affairs Committee shortly on drugs. I, I, I have to say I wouldn't bet heavily on it coming out in favour of, of serious pr prosecution of drug abusers. So this, this whole attitude needs to be changed. Millions of people experiencing it, particularly in the poorer parts of the country where, where drug abuse is out of control, would long for the laws to be enforced more toughly. But metropolitan trendies, they all think, oh, that's okay. Yeah. And I think that there is a serious moment coming where the metropolitan trend has come up against what you might call the, the red wall people mm. on this issue. And they might be quite surprised yes. to find what public opinion really is about this. Well, because this particular killing is, is really the sort of the top oh. end of the market, isn't it? Olivia well, pratt Corbell shot in her own home by a man who cared so little for what he was doing that he just fired a bullet into a corridor. I mean, just imagine if, 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 if anybody close to you was the victim of, of, of a crime like that. The, the feeling of utter frustration no. and hopelessness which would overcome Absolutely. Was, uh, alongside the grief. I mean, it would be bad enough if it had happened in the street and you could say, yeah. oh, it was one of those oh. it was in the wrong place at the wrong time. But it's in just, your own home. It's just unthinkably horrible. And yet, mm. I have to say, the existence of a large drug trade in this country makes this kind of thing much more likely. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, let's talk about Ukraine. Yeah. Um, what's uh, what's well, happening I, there? I, it's, it seems to me that there's a very important misconception. I mean, there's been this great pursuit of, of Al Johnson over his uh, over his. Uh, yes, it's rather ludicrous. Though. Well, I'm, I'm I, I think it's I, okay if you want to pursue him for that. I've, I'm no defender of him, but I think if you want to pursue him for that, then I think you really have to look at another rather important occasion when it appears to me that Parliament was misled, mm. and the whole of this country's attitude towards Ukraine and the war there uh, may have been based on a, a very shaky foundation. Mm. Uh, my view has long been that the Ukraine war began not in 2022 when the Russians invaded, but in 2014 when the Ukrainian government uh, of President Yanukovych was overthrown. Yeah. In I, I believe quite strongly, that, and I think the evidence on this, the historical evidence is quite strong, that Yanukovych, who wasn't very nice and who I don't defend, was nonetheless uh, overthrown mm. by an undemocratic and lawless putsch in a pretty un a pretty violent manner. But oh, there was a whole it. lot of violence, and it's yeah. and it, 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 nobody really argues with this if you if you press them on it. Uh, various claims are made about shootings in Ukraine. An mm. interesting thing: a large number of demonstrators were indeed shot. Yeah. but there is a strong argument about who shot them. And the thing is, it's nine years now since this happened, and the Ukrainian government, more or less of, 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 a, of a nationalist type, uh, which is on the side of the demonstrators, has been in power and in a position to hold an independent inquiry into those shootings. And as far as I... 
It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. I know uh, no such inquiry has either taken place or reported. They've had nine years of government power to go into the records and find out what happened. Well, you have to ask why not. But I, I don't know what happened. But I would say it's confused. But there, mm. it's undoubtedly the case that there were violent uh, people on the streets yes. in the form of a mob. And the 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 other thing which seems to me to be undoubtedly the case, this is where William Hague comes into this, is that when Yanukovych was removed from office, the rules in the Ukrainian constitution were not followed. Now, since what one of the things this country stands for, as well as democracy, is the rule of law and constitutionality, and the mm. Americans even more... Uh, stand on constitution. Look at the outrage and quite justified over the Trump mob that invaded yes. the Capitol on, on, on January the sixth. Shocking business. But a, the the people who who surrounded the U- Ukrainian uh, government buildings and the people involved in this putsch in 2014 have quite a lot in common with right. that January the sixth mob. And the, the, the but the crucial thing is no American president could be removed without strict adherence to the Constitution. But it's quite clear from the figures that there wasn't strict adherence to the Constitution. Now, William Hague may have been misinformed Mm. when, as Foreign Secretary in 2014, he told the House of Commons that the Constitution had been followed. Uh, But all the evidence suggests that when he said that the Constitution had been followed, he was mistaken. Now, I think that this is something which has to be corrected. Either he has to go to the the House of Lords, where he now sits, and say, I'm very sorry about this, I was misinformed. Uh, or he has because, to say because, it was, it was wrong. Himself, but it, it's it's very important because the whole attitude of the mm. country, the political class and the press is all based on the assumption that the the, 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 the change of Ukrainian government in 2014 was a democratic... And um, also, more importantly, um, a righteous thing to do. Um, totally righteous, yes. And that's the other problem because the way that, uh, that either the, both the media and the political class look at this stuff, it seems to me, is now once again siloed, isn't it? You have to think in this manner about everything that happens there. Because well, I don't remember there being a massive outcry about it at all. Well, no, this is, again, this is the case also with COVID, as we both remember that certainly at the beginning of it, there was one opinion which you were supposed to have, mm. and if you didn't have it, then you were in trouble. Yeah. And I, as with that, I, I, I think from my own knowledge, experience and research that, that people have been, have been sold a false bill of goods on this, and I, I keep on saying so, and eventually, with a bit of luck, it will arise. Well, the, th- the bizarre thing is that there are probably more people in the United States who are opposed to the policy mm. on, on Ukraine, which we're following, than, than there are in this country. And what we're following is not just United States bipartisan, multipartisan policy. We're following the policy towards Ukraine of quite a small, a very militant faction in Washington, mm. D.C., and I don't really see what Britain's interest is in doing this. So I think questions should be asked. Yeah, more. I think you're absolutely right. Questions, indeed. We'll have more questions for you because that's what we like to do here at the Independent Republic. Peter Hitchens will be here. Uh, we'll take a short break. We'll be back after this. On DAB Plus, on the app, Talk Radio, and Talk TV. 
Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. This is, of course, Talk TV, the only place to find common sense these days, it would seem. Peter Hitchens is here. Uh, Peter, while you are here, we haven't really talked much about um, Northern Ireland. No. You've got some great experience of working there and um, having had many interactions with the, um, the Sinn Féin Brigade, as we like to call them. Oh, yeah, Jerry, um, Jerry Adams and I are like that. Yes. But, I, um, but what do you make of what's going on now? Because we've, we've now got the Rishi Sunak sort of framework made in Windsor, yes. um, given the name as if it was going to help the DUP to get back to normal. Now we find out last week that the terror threat has gone up. Well, it, it's all, people keep telling me that there is peace in Northern Ireland, but of course what there is is an absence, for the most part, of, of uh, major incidents on the mainland. Yeah. There's an awful lot of unpeace of people being burnt out of their houses, mm. of gangsterism and smuggling under the... It's um, still quite a menacing place, I was. Well, it can be if you go to the wrong part. Yeah, yeah it's that You don't want to be in, in, in the wrong area where the boys are in charge of either side. And both. Right. One of the things which the agreement did was it... it basically licensed low-level bad behaviour mm. by the thugs of, of, of both the so-called loyalists and uh, and the other side too. And I think a lot of people are, are very much afraid of them mm. in, the, in the areas where they live. As, as I say, people are still driven from their homes and there are still, every so often, there's a minor supposed incident. Uh, I think a very major incident a few weeks ago of the senior police officer who was shot, yes. as far as I know, is still lying... I think he's still in critical you know, condition, in, in hospital. Yeah. It, it sounds very sad and very serious. And these things tend to be attributed to weird organisations called the Real IRA or the yes. Continuity well, the IRA. the new ones. Well, I think they would, the better name for them would be the I Can't Believe It's Not the IRA. Yes. Uh, often these incidents happen when there are, there are tricky moments in negotiations uh, over, uh, over more concessions. Uh, because the the agreement, the Belfast Agreement in 1998, was by no means the end of the concessions right. uh, made to the to, to the men of violence. They've continued, and all this business we have now about the prosecution of soldiers and police officers from the troubles and the non-prosecution mm. of terrorists is uh, has, has been carrying on mm. since then. It's not. It's never settled. And the final issue is the fact that Northern Ireland remains a semi-detached part of the United Kingdom. There is no other part of this country whose membership of the United Kingdom depends solely on the non uh, the non holding of a referendum and as soon as the uh, as soon as Sinn Féin believe that that referendum will produce the result which they've always wanted that is to say that Northern Ireland will, will leave yeah will disappear uh, will leave the United Kingdom and join the Irish Republic then that referendum mm. will be held uh, I've always believed that that moment will come and I still do and so that it, it, this keeps the whole thing in tension it's one of the reasons why the the issue of our leaving the European Union has been so so important in it because it has has, has raised the fact that there are there are two different jurisdictions in Ireland and uh, one of them is now a trade jurisdiction mm. and has created whether anybody wants it or not a border and and there we are and the, t the tensions that come with that and the other thing that happened but we've been told of course that if the deal that Rishi Sunak did was done i.e. that they would leave them sort of partially in yeah. the European Union it will be not inside it but kind of with it um, that the violence wouldn't come and yet here we are with the terror threat being yeah, raised I think there's a, there's a feeling about about anniversaries that somebody might want to try something on I don't know raising terrorist threats is one thing but the, the, the thing that you have to remember about the, the the single worst effect, and there were so many that it's hard to count, of the 1998 agreement was that it, it rewarded political violence and it destroyed, more or less, the two major constitutional parties in Northern Ireland, the, the Ulster Unionists and the SDLP, 
and they were replaced by parties which were much, much less, uh, how shall I put it, lovable. Nuanced. And, and um, then in, in the Irish Republic, uh, it's also s- s- triggered the huge growth of Sinn Féin yeah. as a major party, which never was before in the Republic, mm. and the decline of the of the two constitutional post-independence parties of, of Fianna Gael and Fianna Foyle. And this is, seems to me to be very bad for mm. the future of, of Ireland as a whole. And I, I love Ireland. I think it's, you know, it's, it's a place that we any British or English person has to have a lot of liking for. And I, I fear very much for mm. its future as this goes on. Yeah, indeed. Let's talk about one final thing. TV, Great Expectations. <laughs> Part two was on last night. Um, and it's been roundly criticised, not least by uh, the Daily Mail's uh, critic, who's given it one star out of five. Well, I must watch it so I can gloat. I have not yet <laughs> watched it. I mean, reading what it contained, I thought, and I wrote a couple of weeks ago, that it, that it, it, was, a, it, it was an invasion and a, a hijacking, really, of, a, of one of the great works of art and literature of this country. Uh, why can't people, if they want to make television programmes about people having their bottoms thwacked by nominations. Yes, I think we have a picture of that. Uh, if, if, if it's the if, first time a bottom has been thwacked on this if show. You, if you want to, <laughs> it probably won't be the last <laughs> now, if you if you want to make a programme, uh, a drama containing that kind of thing, then make your own. Don't call yeah. it Great Expectations, in which no such incident happens. I mean, all human life is in Dickens, but as it happens, Great Expectations does not contain uh, opium smoking or bottom thwacking. Uh, or a crude swearing, and nor is um, nor is Pip Pirip um, introduced to prostitutes no. at an early but age. They've done what they always do, his virginity, which is they found happen. something that they thought was good, i.e., Peaky Blinders, adapted and, and and made into what I thought was a pretty good show by Stephen Knight until the sort of last series when it went a bit mad. But he's it's it's the Stephen Knight treatment, and, and very interestingly, it's it's um, uh, the, the the piece by Christopher Stevens, who's the, the male's critic, says. Yeah. He's like um, a sort of a one-trick pony with a guitar. Uh, and he goes, thwang, village bigwig Mr. Pumblechook displays his bare bottom to be thwacked by Mrs. Joe's riding crop. Clang, a judge tried to blow his own brains out with a pistol. Kerrang, Miss Havisham handed <laughs> Pip a bag of opium and ordered him to sell yeah, it to sellers. It is very, a bit like that. It is very good, isn't it? It, it is. I, I, but, <laughs> but this is the thing. You get a, there seems to be, somebody else wrote at the weekend, you seem to get, if you, you make a successful television series, your reward is to be let loose on Charles Dickens. Yes. What did Charles Dickens ever do that was so bad that to, to, to deserve this treatment. Well, why, I mean, why, everything why has to be his, rewritten his, now. No, so, several of his books, and Great Expectations, David Copperfield, A Tale of Two Cities Above All, yeah. are so good that they will last way beyond this era. Yes. They're such tremendous. But and they, the old they films have been, were made. Were they great. have been beautifully filmed yes. in the past, and good, good films exist in them. Why just leave them alone mm. if you can't do better? I don't think Peaky Blinders is a good apprenticeship. For Dickens, and no. I, I think it, the, the, it's—I don't want it to be under some kind of protection order that no one can ever touch it. Yes, but I do think that there are things that you can't do to, to works of literature that, that, that take it too far. There are things you, you could do. All it was kind a bit of, like Baz Luhrmann doing that, Romeo and no, Juliet. That was good, though, wasn't it? Because it was—it it was clever. It was illuminating. Mm. I'm not against that. But if you—if if, you—I'm not going to go into all the possible variations of what you could do to Romeo and Juliet, which would be so taking it too far. Mm. But I suppose if Romeo and Juliet had a sadomasochistic relationship in their brief <laughs> courtship, then that perhaps would be one of those things yeah. which you oughtn't to do. Mm. And I think that you, there are limits because these things exist. Because they're so good, they have an existence beyond our power to alter. 
Yes, I think that's right. And there we are. So if you like it, um, good luck to you. But I think uh, more wasted taxpayers' money, I would say, on the BBC's front. Peter Hitchens, thank you very much indeed. We'll see you next week. Oh, actually, I'm not here next week, but we'll talk about that. Um, I won't see you next week, but uh, somebody will. Um, I'm Mike Graham. I'll be back after this. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. It's great to be back, actually. I was away for a couple of days because it was the weekend. Listen, um, I just like working. I just love the Independent Republican Mike Graham. I love all of you who uh, managed to tune in, whether you're listening on the radio, whether you're watching it on television. Uh, it is a thing of great beauty, and we're looking forward uh, to being with you all this week, of course. Um, I've got a text here on the parking situation. Mike, not everyone using parking meters regularly uh, and don't have necessary apps. You can bet that different local authorities will use different apps. Well, that's absolutely absolutely right because I've parked quite often uh, in, a, in a space say in London that I would go to uh, once in a while and normally speaking I don't have an app but you call a number and then it asks you if it's the, the same car that you parked there last time and if it isn't you change the registration number but you have the same credit card that can be okay but you're actually phoning a number and doing it all as an automated thing. It can be a bit time-consuming, because if you get it wrong and you're in a hurry, it can be absolutely infuriating. But what we're now being told is that many, many places in Britain, which formerly would have had sort of old-fashioned parking meters or at least a credit card-using parking meter, are not going to have those anymore, and you're going to have to use an app, which is going to pretty much out outsource and outlaw uh, a lot of older people in particular from being able to use them because they either don't want to have a parking app on their phone or they don't actually have the phone that could take the parking app. Let's talk to Andrew Goodacre now as a CEO for British Independent Retailers because of course shops will be affected. There's already a lot of uh, small towns that don't have very very good business going on because people can't park their cars to go shopping there. Uh, Andrew, very good uh, morning to you. Welcome. Morning, Mike. Thanks very much for joining us. I mean, I know this is probably a, a, perhaps a minor irritation for, for a lot of shop, shop owners and, and people that run shops, but, but the problem of parking in many, many small towns um, and villages even in this country now, and cities perhaps, is, is a real problem, isn't it? I've got to be honest, it's not a minor irritation. It's a major bugbear. Um, accessibility to high streets, towns, villages, as you say, mm. just becoming increasingly difficult. Um, Car parking costs are going up all the time. The, the number of spaces is being reduced all the time. There are traffic calming measures in place in lots of places. And you've got ULEs coming in, in the capital, of course. Um, you know, it, it, it's just another reason not to not to go to the high street, but go to a retail park oh, where yes. it's free parking, readily accessible, and stay there as long as you want most of the time. And, right. and it just seems to me as if they are driving people away from the, the hubs of the communities. They really are. I mean, I've noticed, for example, there's a lot of places down in, in Sussex where I spend a bit of time at the weekends where they've, they've imposed parking bays where there never used to be any, you know, and they would have, what they used to have was, say, a sort of relatively sensible um, place where you would, say, be able to park for half an hour or something like that, and, and if you parked for any longer, you might get a ticket, but there was no need to pay for the actual space while you were there, you know? Yeah, I agree. And, and I mean, we all know that parking generates revenue for local authorities. Mm. And I think uh, last time I looked at the figures across the UK, it's about a billion pounds a year. So right. it's an attractive opportunity for local authorities, especially in these times yes. when, when cash is, is tough for local authorities as it, as it is for the consumers. But it's very short-sighted because mm. if you haven't got businesses that are succeeding on, on high streets, 
you've got empty shops you've not got people paying business rates so you may gain on one side but you lose massively on the other yes i mean i know of at least a couple of shops in in in, in small towns uh, in the southeast of england where they've literally just relocated somewhere else because they couldn't um they just couldn't get the footfall and they couldn't get enough people into the shop to make it work and it wasn't viable and i think that's a real shame because the lifeblood of small towns and, and villages is local shops i mean recently the sunday times found wadhurst to be i think the, the nicest place in britain to live in east sussex and one of the things they cited was that it was a very um, vibrant and viable high street and guess what you don't have to pay to park there no and and yeah there's a surprise eh? we all know i think if we if we think hard about this and i've seen it written down so many times by so many different government ministers and other bodies independent retailers the diversity of small privately owned shops is at the heart of every good high street yeah every good market and and you know communities love it they and and because they know those businesses really care about the, the local economy they make a massive contribution mm. to the local economy and it becomes a a virtuous circle not 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 a vicious cycle of of um that we're seeing now with local authorities almost forcing businesses right. out of because the other problem I've found as well is a lot of places now they have these completely out of proportion fines. You know, if you're in a car park, you pay a pound for an hour. But if you go over the, the hour, it's an 80 pound fine. And you go, well, come on. I mean, 80 quid. That's ridiculous. I mean, make it 10 or something or make it 20 if you have to, but not 80. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I was challenged by some of the companies operating that scheme. And and, and there is a, a balance here, I guess, regarding car parking, because if it's freely available um, all the time, then you do find people hogging spaces for with, with no intention of using the high street. Yeah. So you've got to find a balance of making sure that there's a, just as you want footfall of people, you want a, a footfall or traffic full of cars mm. moving in and out of car parks. The argument is, is, is that if the fine, if the penalty is too low, people don't mind. They'd rather pay £30 for all day parking. It's quite cheap, depending yeah. where you are in the country. Um, whether whether a hundred pound or eighty pound is fair, I don't know. I believe there's a consultation on that aspect coming up soon. Yeah. The bottom line is, we all know car parking, the way it's, the cost of it, the way it's implemented, and its ease of use by customers makes a huge difference as to whether as to where the shopper chooses to go. And this move to, to remove. Um, parking meters i mean why move away from contactless we mm. all use cards that's yes, where i say all exactly. that's far more readily available it's far safer there's no cash involved easier to do mm. why move away from that option I, I don't understand it and also as one of our um, texters said earlier mostly uh, they won't all use the same app though you probably have to have about six different apps in order to park in I've different got places i've got four see <laughs> I've i, got four I refuse I to have yes. them i absolutely refuse to have them because i don't i don't mind calling the number um, you know, and people say you're a Luddite, you should just have, but I've got enough apps on my phone. You know, I, you know, I, 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 I'd rather call a number, know how much time I'm putting in. No, it's not going to be screwed up. You know what I mean? I mean, what if your phone breaks or you lose your phone and you don't know where you, you know, you don't, you, could, anything could happen. I, I had exactly that problem um, only a few months ago. Right. And yeah, you take a risk, don't you? Leaving your car somewhere when uh, for some reason I couldn't access the phone ran out of power. I couldn't do anything else. Right. Anything? Okay, I'll, I, I need twenty minutes. I'll take the risk. I was lucky, um, but yes, it, there should be an alternative to the phone if you're unable to use the phone to fulfil the, right. the parking criteria. But this is what this is it. You know, what's wrong with just having a machine? 
Have an right. app if you want one, but I mean, just keep the machine. I mean, a lot, of places, a lot of places I've seen, they've, they've started putting in solar-powered machines, which I presume don't come cheap either. Um, so I don't know if they're now going to take all those out, rip them away, um, having spent a load of money on them. It just seems to me to be a racket, and there's an awful lot of people making an awful lot of money out of people who shouldn't be paying to, to, to do business. Like I always take the American example. You go to most American um, towns, you don't pay to park because they want your business. Yeah, absolutely. And, and most businesses who operate in towns would, would agree with that sentiment. Um, I can only imagine that this idea from the local authorities is saving money for them and probably increasing income. Yeah, probably both. And, you know, is that the real reason? Is that a good enough reason to want to put risk the vibrancy? and the economic growth of, of the place you're, you're impacting yeah. and managing. And exactly. they should have a wider view on this. It's too narrow just to look at parking meters as, as, a, as some kind of um, massive source of income. Yeah, indeed. And just finally, Andrew, how is life for British independent retailers at the moment? We obviously know there's a cost of living crisis, cost of everything's going up, cost of electricity, energy, plus you're probably having to take up, um, you know, um, suppliers charging more money. What's, what's the sort of atmosphere like? Oh, it's difficult. Um, I would say confidence is incredibly fragile. Um, they, they're, they're a resilient group of business people. These have got their livelihoods invested in their business, so mm. they're not going to give it up easily. They're working very hard to to offer value to customers. They're working very hard to control their costs and not to pass on prices. But as from now, their energy prices on average are going to increase by £500 a month because of the government support as, as been taken away mm. effectively right. so that's not easy to find on top of everything else that, that's, that's happening out there and with consumers probably not spending as much as we would like them to see right. but where they do it well when they can engage with the local with their local customers and communities then there's still a love for retailers independent retailers especially yeah. and i think they can get through they just need a bit of breathing space um in order to do so so fragile is, is the way i would call yes. it fragile and, and really hard work for them. yeah i bet great to talk to you andrew appreciate your time thank you very much indeed andrew goodacre there the ceo of british independent retailers uh, on the nightmare uh, for some people and what it will become of just trying to park your car and hopefully not get fined and hopefully not get towed or clamped i mean you know life is hard enough isn't it why on earth are all these people making it more difficult this is Talk TV. Fast Talk. Street Talk. Mike Graham. Fighting the good fight with all his might. Providing a welcome dose of common sense for the common people. Solid Talk. Hot Talk. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Online on DAB Plus, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Coming up, we're going to speak to Dr. Rakiba San because on the front page of the Telegraph this morning uh, is a story that a lot of people probably thought they would never see. Uh, it's political correctness and grooming gangs. The headline says ethnicity of grooming gangs cannot be ignored, the police are told. Rishi Sunak's going to make a statement today uh, in which he's going to say that basically Asian grooming gangs will not be allowed to evade justice because of cultural sensitivities. There's going to be a new package of measures designed to crack down on organised networks of abusers. We've talked about this many times on this show, uh, as indeed have other shows on Talk TV. Uh, but this, for example, now is yet another, um, I suppose, policy change from the Conservatives, because, of course, it was the Labour Party, famously, including uh, Prime Minister Gordon Brown at the time, uh, who said when police departments were investigating these stories about grooming gangs, mainly made up of men of Pakistani origin, uh, they were told, you know, this could be a problem, you know, make sure you do this very carefully, 
team. We don't want to be accused of racism. It was a real nightmare. Um, but we'll be talking to Dr. Rakeem about that. Also, Angela Levin joins us as well um, because Joe Biden apparently might be missing um, the uh, coronation of King Charles, which is probably not a bad thing uh, if you think about it, because most of the time Joe Biden doesn't actually know where he is. So, I mean, I would suggest that maybe it's not a bad idea if, in fact, he doesn't make it. Here he was just last week visiting a town, I'm afraid, that had been hit very, very badly and practically destroyed by a tornado. It's a town called Rolling Fork in Mississippi. Have a look at this. The town of Rolling Stone will be back and will be with you every step of the way. And I, did I, what did I say? I, I, didn't, I said Rolling Fork, Rolling Stone. I got my mind going here. Yeah. Can't really say much else, can you? That's the President of the United States of America, ladies and gentlemen. And he says he might run again. I think if he did come to the coronation, you'd have to tell him where he was, because he wouldn't know. What's that? Rolling thunder? I hear. I mean, it's hard to believe, isn't it, really? Let's talk to Dr. Rakeem Hassan, social policy analyst, of course, and a writer. Rakeem, very good morning to you. Afternoon, Mike. How oh, it is afternoon. So, sure. I, listen, I, it's Monday. I'm out of practice. You know, <laughs> so, so, so the show goes so quickly. I couldn't remember it. But listen, let's talk a lot this morning about this afternoon about uh, this new um, Rishi Sunak policy. I mean, it does seem at the moment that they're, they're literally, you know, ticking a box every day at the moment. This Conservative government, you know, to try and make sure that people who are actually Conservatives are going to be in favour of some of the policies that they're, that they're doing. But this one does seem to be worthwhile, doesn't it? No, I'd say so, Mike. We've talked uh, on multiple occasions about the country's uh, ongoing grooming gangs crisis, uh, particularly cases uh, which have been grossly mismanaged by the public authorities uh, involving adult male perpetrators of Pakistani heritage and white working class girls, uh, very often from what we have here is ultimately a problem where i feel political correctness and cultural sensitivities are at the heart of public institutions who should really be focusing on the bread and butter mike of protecting the most vulnerable in society and we really should and it's incredible isn't it that this went on for such a long time because i was listening to maggie oliver mm. on julia hartley Brewer's show this morning and it's been going on for so long um, and, and Maggie Oliver says, quite quite rightly, and points this out, that it hasn't stopped, that there are still um, Pakistani men grooming young girls in northern cities in this country, and it's, and it's not stopped. No, absolutely. And I think that Maggie Oliver's been an incredibly courageous figure on this front, and quite often she faces a torrent of abuse, uh, along with uh, Labour MPs such as Sarah Champion, uh, just for flagging the fact that we have a very serious problem here where public institutions are ultimately prioritising cultural sensitivities over the delivery of justice. Mm. Um, and that's the simply unacceptable state of affairs. And uh, you're talking about the scale, but also the duration of the problem. Uh, we saw with the Telford report, this spans back 40 years, uh, that this is a decades long Crisis, And I think in that particular um, part of the country, uh, the report found that West Messiah police essentially allowed a, a culture of uh, nervousness surrounding race uh, to develop um, among officers. Uh, yeah. that, that culture became prevalent. And that really needs to be rectified. 
Absolutely right. I mean, Labour, of course, have jumped on the bandwagon and accused the Tory government once again of being racist. Uh, they said that uh, they've singled out British Pakistanis and they're engaged in yeah. dog whistle politics. Well, you know, people that I speak to, um, whether they're from the Sikh community, whether they're from the Hindu community, they do say that actually their children are also at risk because these mainly uh, Pakistani Muslim men uh, are targeting girls from other religions. Well, I also think that argument does a great disservice to British Muslims who are utterly horrified yeah. by the national uh, grooming gangs uh, crisis. Uh, and I think that you see these kind of dynamics also, something that we've discussed Mike before. You see these similar dynamics of cultural sensitivities and racial slash religious identity politics. Uh, you see that playing out in areas such as counter extremism yeah. uh, as well, that people are almost fearful to take a robust approach towards Islamist extremism for fear of being accused of being racist and Islamophobic. And I think you're seeing those, you're seeing those very similar dynamics uh, playing out over the grooming gangs crisis as well. Yeah, because, I mean, we had, did we not, the report uh, after the independent inquiry into child sexual abuse back in October. Um, it said victims and survivors suggested that professionals feared allegations of racism mm. and that this was prioritised over their safety. And they all said that. So it was obviously a thing. No, it, 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 this is clearly an established trend uh, across multiple independent reviews and reports. Uh, it simply can't be ignored. And I think that the uh, 2020 Home Office report, uh, it, it did clearly state that a number of studies found that uh, Asian and black people were overrepresented yeah. when it comes when it comes to this particular kind of activity. But another problem that I'd want to uh, raise, Mike, is that there's a lot of missing data. Now, why is it the case that you have so much missing data for this particular kind of criminal activity? Yeah. Is it the fact that police forces, because of that cultural political correctness, they're even reluctant to record the ethnicity of offenders in mm. some cases? Yeah, and that is a, a, a problem, clearly, that would probably persist in the judicial system and the justice system all told, right? Not just when it comes to these kinds of offences. Well, I, I think that more generally, we see various spheres of life uh, in, in, in British society, which are ultimately paralysed by political correctness and these cultural sensitivities as well. And I think that when, what we need is that we need to refocus. I can't believe I'm actually saying this, but we just need to refocus our efforts on protecting the most vulnerable in society and ensuring that justice is served. Well, it always makes me laugh when I hear Labour politicians in particular and some other, you know, um, shall we say, activists talking about the vulnerable people coming here on small boats and that the vulnerable people who have fled war zones need to be helped. But they don't care so much about the vulnerable people here and they don't care so much about the vulnerable people sleeping um, without homes on the streets of this country. No, I couldn't agree more, Mike. And I think another point I want to raise is that when you're looking at the victims of group-based child sexual abuse, there's a disproportionate number of women and girls who are suffering from disabilities. Right. And I think that that really tells you that how badly let down some of the most vulnerable people living in our society, how badly let down they've been uh, by public authorities who simply have not had their interests of heart. Yeah. They've been far more focused on protecting their backs or looking to avoid uh, potentially tense situations, but that's ultimately what they're paid to do. Yeah. Well, it has to be said um, that vulnerable people and, and the use of that phrase clearly doesn't, um, in terms of the, the public uh, sort of defenders, if you like, doesn't mm. include white working class girls or white working class boys. Have a look at this from a government spokesman who said yesterday, this will also include police recorded ethnicity data to make mm. sure suspects cannot evade justice because of cultural sensitivities, which tells you that they were escaping justice in the past.
Oh, no, no, absolutely. And I think we've also had cases of um, investigations, one being uh, Operation uh, Augusta in the northwest of England, which has prematurely closed down because of these racial sensitivities, mm. the sensitive community issues, fear of inciting racial hatred. If they did their bread and butter of investigating grooming gangs, uh, in, in that case, consistently uh, being made of, of Pakistani origin men. Yeah. And, I, and I think that actually, Mark, I'll just make this point. A lot of people say that, well, this is a gift for the hard right if you, ex if you expose these kind of cases. The real gift is that local authorities and public institutions not addressing these problems because they ultimately want to be pro-diversity and they don't want, and they ultimately mm. prioritise their racial sensitivities over protecting the most defenceless in society. Yeah, there's absolutely no question. So, I mean, we've been saying an awful lot lately that uh, much of what Rishi Sunak is announcing is kind of window dressing its shop uh, window politics, as far as I'm concerned, because it sounds like they're doing something when they're not really. So the proof of this will be in the pudding, won't it? Whether uh, we see mm. more prosecutions. They also say they want it to be an aggravated crime now. Um, I've heard some people say before that it should actually become a hate crime because it is, technically mm. speaking, um, a crime perpetuated on certain groups of people. Um, whether that happens, I don't know. But, but we won't know really, will we, for about a good year, whether this is going to work. Well, I think that what we we have to go beyond the rhetoric, um, and I think it's something we've said before that the Conservative Party, the Conservative government, uh, is great when it comes to delivering uh, strongly worded rhetoric. Mm. But we need to see the bread and butter of policy delivery. We need to see public institutions um, being taken to task um, if they have a history of grossly mismanaging cases of um, group-based child sexual yeah. abuse. We, they need to have the resources, but they also need to have the cultural mindset to tackle this problem head on. And it goes all the way back, doesn't it, to the Gordon Brown days when the Labour Party back then in government actually did advise, via the Home Office, police um, to be extremely careful about investigating these kinds of crimes. Well, Mike, uh, at the end of the day... The police, their bread and butter is investigating mm. criminal activity, irrespective of the background of the perpetrator and the backgrounds of the victim. It's quite as simple as that. If we say that we're living in a mature multi-ethnic democracy, that those kind of racial, religious and cultural sensitivities, they have no place when it comes to matters of law and order. No, exactly right. Well, let's see if it has uh, any uh, any hope of success. Rakib, very good to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed, Dr. Rakib Hassan, there, social policy analyst and writer. A um, couple of tweets to read out to you. Um, Dodo says, I currently have seven parking apps on my phone, with Ringo being the most well-used. Um, Bag Biker says, the first time I had to use a parking app, I cursed like mad when I had to install it and set it up. However, the second time in a different city, it was brilliant. Recognised my location, gave me a selection of durations to choose, had my car already registered was actually much easier. Jimmy, however, says, don't forget, it's another level of tracking and the ability to sell your data to a third party. And you might not have thought of that. Uh, how about this? Uh, Mike says, Ashton under Lyme had this parking system. It lasted a week. Everyone stopped going to the town and now we don't have it anymore. And Terry in Ramsbottom says, I saw a lady paying for her parking with an app. I paid my parking with cash, put the ticket on the windscreen and she was still fiddling with her phone. Well, there is that. It's a fascinating subject, though, isn't it? Who knew? that there was so much information that we didn't know um, about the overselling of things and about the overselling of an app. I mean, sometimes you get an app and you buy a space, but there isn't one. That's the other problem you've got. And Lee says, train companies are always overselling their seats. I was on a uh, LN railway line, London Northwestern railway line, uh, on Saturday from Northampton to Houston. It was dangerously overcrowded, but the railway company just responds with, it isn't dangerous, pure greed. Just wait until one crashes or is derailed.
Well, it's very dangerous what some of these operations do and how many oversell tickets. And that's exactly what looks like it happened uh, at Dover over the weekend. Shambolic. This is Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. This is, of course, the one place where you get common sense. You get the truth. You get the whole truth. You get nothing but the truth. Uh, take no substitutes, accept no substitutes, and keep it here. Uh, we'll be here all the way through, of course, uh, the day. Ian Collins from 1, uh, Vanessa Feltz from 4. Uh, 7 o'clock, Jeremy Kyle. Uh, I'll be gracing his show tonight. Uh, and then, of course, Piers Morgan uncensored at 8 o'clock. Um, Rosanna Lockwood sitting in for Piers. And then uh, the talk, which will be here all week as well. 0344-499-1000 is the number. Let us talk now, though, uh, to our favourite royal correspondent. She is, of course, the one and only Angela Levin. Angela, how nice to Hello. see you. How are you doing? Hello. Nice to be here. Very yeah, good. Very fine. good. We haven't spoken for a while, partly because no. there hasn't been a lot going on, bizarrely. Although I do have to admit that Andrew, Prince Andrew, managed to make it onto Plank of the Week last week uh, on the basis that he thought he might want to write his own book, which didn't seem like a terribly good idea to me. I presume he's given up on that now. Very bad idea. Yes. Yes, it won't work at all. No. He's quite obstinate, and if he has a ghostwriter, he'll be asking for things in there that... Sh- she she might say that's really not going to help you, but you know he he would know better. Yes, uh, not a good idea. Really, not a good idea. Let's talk about Prince Harry because he's come back into um, uh, sort of contention for Plank of the Week because, of course, in his book Spare, he wrote an awful lot about his past drug use, and now there's an American um, sort of think tank who have asked for a copy of his um, the form that he filled in to get his visa application sorted out. Well, this could this could sort of come back and backfire in a bit, couldn't it? Yes, absolutely, certainly. The thing is, apparently, if you're a certain age, you are allowed to take certain drugs. Mm. But he has to have signed the document that's allowed him in right. in an honest way. So if he'd say, if he sort of said, no, I don't do drugs, then he'll be in trouble. If he's admitted he does them, apparently... Um, it won't be such a trouble. Right. I mean, I just think, I just think they're sorry. I just think there that Megan, as a adoring wife, should have said to him because she obviously reads everything and knows everything that he does. You know, this is not a good idea, Harry. Mm. You know, don't risk not being able to get back into America. Yes. I wonder why she didn't think that that was perhaps her obligation. If Harry's not wise enough to know about that, then he should have help from his wife. Yes, and I heard an interesting explanation as well, that they treat foreign nationals differently to American nationals. For example, you know, while it may be legal to possess and smoke marijuana in California, and it's even legal to grow it and sell it, um, it's not... That, that's not the case in every single state. So federal law still has um, jurisdiction over the whole country and federal law says that marijuana is not legal and that's one of the reasons why the people that grow it and make a lot of money from it often have difficulty opening bank accounts because it's a federal law that they can't put that money into a bank. And so the way that he has described his drug use um, might be OK if he's an American, but if he's a, a foreigner, not so much. Yeah, I mean... You know, you have to be careful when you say these things. I don't quite know what the proof, what what he wanted by saying that. It doesn't look good at any way you look at it. But um, he should have, he's got so many assistants. They've got huge staff 
and they've got common sense that you should know that it's actually not a very good idea. It's a look before you leap situation, yes. isn't I it? I think very much so. Uh, but unfortunately, that's not something that Harry seems to be particularly good at, looking before he leaps, is he? No, he's always been impetuous. Everything's gone very well, and then suddenly, whoops, he's done something terrible. Like when he was just about to pass his um, army cred- accreditations, you know, he and a couple of guys went to a strip club um, and that hit the papers. And then, you know, one of the um, army seniors didn't know whether to give it to him or not. You know, it was a whole hoo-ha. Now, if he'd waited another day, uh, he'd have been out of there and he could do what he likes. And so I think that was a a very good example of of that sort of impulsiveness that Mm. he has. Yes, absolutely right. Meanwhile, of course, when he was in London, um, his father was a bit too busy to see him, not least because he was over in Germany, um, doing what looked like a very successful visit with himself and Camilla. Well, it was obviously very successful. I mean, at the end, when they were on a balcony waving, there were obviously thousands of people. You can't get that many people Mm. to stand in. um, Shouting, we want King Charles. And they'd waited in hours, um, despite the torrential rain. So um, it was very good. I thought the balance between serious and fun mm. was brilliantly done. You know, the balance of of laying a wreath with the German um, president yeah. and saying, you know, this is the, we want to make friends again, you know, really good friends again. And this is to remember all the people who died. It was both sides. And I thought that was very, very important. Should have had more press actually about that because it's an amazing line to draw now. Mm underneath the past and also speaking in their government you know the first british um, monarch to do that um, i thought that was very good he spoke a lot in german which people loved even though sometimes he was a bit hesitant i'm not surprised at that yeah um and then the uh, kindercraft uh, where ten thousand jewish children were taken from germany and to save their lives into the uk when most of their parents would have died in concentration camps. All that was serious. And then one of the the lovely ones was that he was trying to make cheese. And he got giggles and he roared with laughter. And here we saw a Prince Charles much more relaxed, very happy. He also was given a pint of what looked like beer, but I I don't know exactly. You wonder. He could have been non-alcoholic beer, I suppose. Ah, and he, he offered Camilla and she said something and he absolutely burst out laughing. Mm. So you see, they're very natural together. They're very easy together. And Camilla did what she always does is read to children and she drew a drawing of a famous... She did a Gruffalo, uh, I think, didn't she? Gruffalo drawing watched by the original person who drew it, who thought it was great. Yes. She's very good at that and, you know, left it for the children. And um, that was very nice. They could put it in a in a frame and hang it on the wall. Very nice, very natural, very successful, very happy. So you've got Harry moaning endlessly on the one side, and you've got um, Charles and Camilla in their mid seventies working flat out. Yes. The other side, but enjoying it too. And the same for William and Kate as well, doing a great job of representing the royal family at various different events. And Edward and Sophie as well. Mm. Um, The people who just get down and and do things, you don't have to keep moaning. You just 
find what you want to do and, and do it, you know. Well, it's very clear in America, isn't it, that people are sick and tired of all the moaning and they've started to make fun of them on a sort of fairly regular basis now. Well, it's um, so much of it, actually, all sorts of things. Um, nearly every day on my Twitter feed, there's somebody taking the mickey out of them and sort of making a mockery as well that, you know, they're obviously very rich, but they pretend, you know, that's not enough and they're hard done by. Um, and that's the only way they can think of selling uh, the, the stuff that they to make money you know it's just um it's a horrible thought actually it's a horrible thought that you're using a family mm. whatever they like that you're then going to profit financially out of that by telling all the nasty things and the you know the darker corners mm. you know? no, no i think so i think so well i mean i wonder how much of that um reaction in america will have an effect on the books uh, that he's been supposedly um, you know, sort of contracted to write, because he's meant to be writing about another four, isn't he? Well, one of them is about health, and then the other one is Megan doing her own uh, story. And, uh, you know, I mean, Megan's not known for actually saying the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, <laughs> like the programme. That's why she doesn't and, come on here. <laughs> and, um, you know, I'm sure that the people who support her will buy anyway and think she's wonderful. But I think if you look at it, you might find lots of, um, let's say, not truths on the pages. Yes. I don't think people are interested anymore. You can't keep on and on going back. You know, they're a youngish, middle-aged couple. They've got a future ahead of them. You know, lovely house, 16 mm. bathrooms, a girl and a boy who look very sweet. And why don't you get on with it? Yeah. Move forward. You know, keep on hanging on to the past and clinging on to royal titles when yes. you hate the royals. It makes no sense. And what's your latest speculation on the coronation itself? Do you think, because I said in the past, I think he might come on his own. But I've heard others now saying that he thinks that, that you think they'll both come. Well, I hope neither of them come, actually. Mm. I think if they come, one of them or two of them, the, the, the intensity will be on them yes. because people will be looking to see what trick they've got up to somehow mm. uh, of taking the limelight. That's what they want so that they can then do another documentary, I imagine. Um, but I think uh, my feeling is that this is King Charles's great day and he's been working mm. towards this um, all his life, he's known that this would happen. And I think we should just all focus on him. I, I don't care what they do. As long as they're not somewhere sitting in the front row in the cathedral, I um, I, I think, you know, uh, just take no notice. Mm. They go to moan. Whatever happens, there's going to be when they dig and look for something that's not quite right to their liking. Yes. Um, but this has to be King Charles's day. It does. Absolutely right. Angela, good to speak to you. Thank you very much indeed. Angela Levin there, royal biographer and journalist on the coronation uh, and, of course, the King and Queen's trip to Germany and, of course, that other bloke, the, form, the Herbert formerly known as Prince Harry. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.